Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the gift that it is to uh, be your people. We're thankful for you being gracious uh, according to the purpose and plan that you have sovereignly made to send your son to come and bring redemption to a broken and fallen world. And God, as we think about the things going on in our world, we see so clearly the need for your grace and for your redemption and for the gospel of Jesus to go forward and change uh, hearts and to change lives. We pray for, uh, for our country, Lord, and for the, the, the tensions, for the fears, for the questions, and for the wrestlings that, that people are going through. We pray, God, that the peace of the gospel would transform communities, transform lives, God, and, and make our country a place where people are safe, where people are welcomed, and the beauty of the gospel is shown off. We pray for the leadership of our country. God, we pray that you, God, in a divine and powerful way would give wisdom to the leaders of our country. God, that you would bring people who are not seeking to rule and to exercise power for their own gain and authority, but for the good of others. God, we pray you would stir the hearts of our leaders in that direction, Lord. And we pray for the churches in our city. Lord, what a gift it is to, to know that there are many churches in this city, but Lord, we also need more. And so we pray for the churches in the city that are faithful to your word and faithful to the gospel, that they would flourish, that they would grow, and that they would be strong, and that new people would be added to their number, and that even new churches will be planted out of those churches here in the city, so that more and more people in this beautiful city of Boston would know your son, Jesus Christ. We pray as we turn to your word, Father, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, that you would make us attentive that you would make us humble and contrite, trembling under your word. We pray that you would feed us from your word. And we trust in your promise that your word does not come back void, but will bring about the, the change, the fruit, and the results that you have purposed. So would you fix our eyes on Christ as we turn to the scriptures now. Pray it for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I'm going to go ahead and read the text for us. We're going to zone in particularly on verses 24 and 25, but I'm going to read this whole section for us. Verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to tell you a story uh, from, from, an, from an author. He's talking about, uh, in this particular uh, story, he's talking about doing a, a, a half Ironman triathlon, which sounds like a very poor idea. But he's telling a story about when he chose to do this. And he's, uh, he's, he's telling a story of, in this marathon, interacting with two types of people. And, and he says this, after the 1.2-mile swim and the 56-mile bike ride, I did not have much energy left for the 13.1-mile run. Doesn't that sound horrible? Let's <laughs> just acknowledge that that sounds evil. So after the 1.2-mile swim, 56-mile bike ride, he didn't have a lot of energy for the 13-mile run, and neither did the fellow jogging next to me. I asked him how he was doing and soon regretted posing the question. The guy next to him says, this stinks. This race is the dumbest decision I've ever made. And uh, the author says, he had more complaints than a taxpayer at the IRS. My response to him was goodbye. I knew if I listened too long, I'd start agreeing with him. So, so the guy says this, I, I caught up with a 66-year-old grandmother. Her tone was just the opposite. You'll finish this, she encouraged. It's hot, but at least it's not raining. One step at a time. Don't forget to hydrate. Stay in there. And the author says, I ran next to her until my heart was lifted and my legs were aching. And finally, I had to slow down. No problem, she said, as she waved and kept going. And the author's making this point that in, in the marathon of uh, this crazy ordeal that he's going through, the people next to him are critical to his success. So he's making the point that, that he could have stayed running next to this guy who was complaining the whole time, and that would have bogged him down. But instead, he ended up interacting with this 66-year-old grandmother who was full of what? Encouragement. And he ran with her, he stood with her for as long as he could, and he was encouraged by her to keep persevering in the marathon, to keep persevering for that last 13.1-mile uh, run. And what I want us to see as we turn to this text in Hebrews, and we've already heard it, we're really focusing on verses 24 and 25, that the Christian life following Jesus is like a marathon. And one of the aspects of continuing in that marathon is our need for encouragement. One of the things that we need in order to follow Jesus successfully, faithfully, to endure, to persevere, to grow, and to not give up is the gift of encouragement. The whole book of Hebrews, this, this, um, this letter that we're not exactly sure who wrote, but this whole book of Hebrews is about an exhortation, a call to persevere, to look to Jesus and to continue and to not fall into sin, to not stagnate, but to look to the Savior and continue. One of the refrains throughout this whole letter is, let us. This idea of let us keep moving. Let us not neglect this. Let us hold to the confession. Let us draw near to God. This idea of encouragement and exhortation. And as we go through this series of deeper, what does it look like to go deeper with Jesus in 2017 as a church? We talked about last week, going deeper with Jesus is centering our lives on the gospel, being gospel-centered believers, going deeper in our identity in Jesus and less in our identity by our activity. And today what we're going to talk about is how do we go deeper as engaged disciple makers? 
And one of the ways we go deeper, we grow as disciple makers, is by growing as encouragers. A lot of times we think about discipleship, this call that Jesus gives. He gives the great commission. He says, go therefore and make what? Disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. He says he'll be with us even to the end of the age. One of the things that he says to make disciples is to do what? It starts with a T, to teach, right? We need to teach to make disciples. You need to explain who Jesus is, what the gospel is, what does the scripture say, what does it mean to follow him? How do you make disciples and replicate yourself? How do you pass on what you've learned of Jesus? How do you model the Christian life to others? That's all good and great. Teaching is part of discipleship, but do you know what else is part of uh, making disciples that we often forget? Encouraging. Encouraging someone who's already in the race. They're already in it. They need help. They're slowing down at mile two. We need to encourage them to continue to move forward with Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. This idea that an engaged disciple maker stirs people up for Jesus. Stirs people up for Jesus. Teaching is important in disciple making, but stirring people up for Jesus is critical for engaged disciple makers to do. So let's look at this text. We're going to see three things. First thing is the call to stir up, how to stir up, and then the outcome to stir up. So first, the call to stir up. Look at, um, look at verses uh, 24 and 25, where we're going to spend the bulk of, uh, the bulk of our time. So this call to let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, if we look at this text, the verses before, we see let us happen two other times, right? So First, the author in 22 says, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near because what has happened? Jesus is our high priest. Jesus has made the way for us to enter the presence of God. There's a reference to to, to the temple, entering the Holy of Holies. Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, has made the way for sinners to enter the presence of God. So, So in 22, the author says, let us draw near. Look at what Jesus has done. Let's come close. We can draw near with confidence. We see this actually repeated throughout the letter. And let us draw near with the true heart, cleansed from an evil conscience, sprinkled and washed. He's, he's laying out salvation. He's laying out that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. We've responded to that with baptism. We're, we're clean, so let us draw near to God. And then in 23, because of what Jesus has done, let us hold fast the confession. Let us hold fast to what we've believed and not shaken by trials of life. Let us hold tight to Jesus. And then 24 and 25, where we're going to focus. Let us not only draw near to God because of what Jesus has done, let us not only hold tight to Jesus because of what he's done, but let's also encourage others towards Jesus because of what Jesus has done. Let us stir one another up to love and to good works. Now, this idea of stir up, um, this is the language of provoking. This is the language of stimulating. How many of you have had something happen over the last week that has just made your blood boil with anger? Anybody get angry over last week? Yeah. Right? Anybody ever had that in your life where somebody has just said one thing and you're just, the blood in your veins just is like on high and it's just boiling? That's that's this idea of stir up. It's this provoke. It's, It's even the language you see elsewhere in scripture for sharp disagreement. So what the author of Hebrews is basically saying is provoke people to love and good works. So this is a positive, uh, this, is a, this is a positive pr- uh, provocation, right? Stimulate people, encourage people, launch someone into action, right? The way our blood boils in anger, in that same way, the, the author is calling us to, to have our, our blood boil, not in anger, but in excitement for Jesus, and then to pass that on to somebody else. 
Stir them up. Stimulate them towards what? Love and good works. Provoke people to love and good works. So that's what an engaged disciple maker does. That's what a believer in Jesus does. They provoke people to love and good works. You have all had friends that have provoked you towards trouble, right? You just get around them and just like, wow, now I just want to steal something or I just want to break the law. Like, I don't know what it is about you. I just want to, <laughs> I don't know, I'm supposed, not supposed to, but I really want to now, right? You've all had those friends who have grown up around them. You're just like, man, this just rubs off on me. You provoke me to X, Y, and Z. The, the, uh, the author is saying, provoke, disciple makers provoke people to love and good works. You just catch it from them. They stir you up towards that end. So, so if we can see this call, this is, this is part of what Jesus is saying to make disciples. His, one of his apostles, one of his writers is now saying, hey, flesh it out this way. Stir people up to love and good works. Now, this, this begs the question, well, what exactly is love and good works, right? Those are two very nebulous phrases that just kind of float there. Love and good works. Okay, we all sort of have an idea what that means, but we don't know exactly, and we don't know it enough to the point that we can actually really do it, right? Strip people to love. You could take that a bunch of ways. Strip people to good works. You could take that a bunch of ways. So what exactly does that, does that mean? Here's, here's, here's where, where we're going with this. Here's what this means. Love is the internal motivation displayed by the outward acts of good works. Now, when we have to think biblically about, about these, these terms uh, because we, we often will just simply, I, I know I do this a lot, we'll often encounter good works in Scripture, and the first image that pops into our mind is often just like opening a door for someone, right? Or like helping somebody cross the street or like helping somebody... Um, shovel their sidewalk. Right? We often just think of these kind of generic things, and the Bible would describe those things as, as good works have done from in response to the gospel, but th- that's also just being nice, right? And, and so, so God is calling us here not just to be nice, but to display biblical love and biblical good works. So it's even, he's raising the bar beyond be nice, right? And hopefully we can just do that because we're made in God's image, right? And good works, if we look at the New Testament, good works is this catch-all phrase in the New Testament for acts of obedience to God done because of the grace of God. So, so good works is this, this junk drawer catch-all phrase for acts of obedience to God in light of the transforming grace of God. Does that make sense? These are the works that come out of somebody who has been saved by the grace of Jesus and is now doing acts of obedience to God, not to earn favor, but in love and devotion in response to what God has done. This a good works is, is this, a good works that, that the New Testament is talking about is this, is Jesus has saved me, I want to live for him, and because of what Jesus has done for me, I want to work hard at my job. I want to honor Jesus with my effort. Jesus saved me, and so you know what? In this moment of temptation, I'm going to say no to this, to my habitual sin here, and I'm going to try my best to walk in obedience in that moment. That's a good work, according to the New Testament. That's what good works look like. And good works, according to the New Testament, they only grow out of the soil of faith in the gospel. So according to the New Testament, the only person who can do good works in the New Testament definition is somebody who has repented of their sins, trusted in Christ alone. It's the only person who can do good works according to the New Testament. Well, well why? Well, if you look at the, read the New Testament, we cannot obey God without his grace, right? So a good work is an act of obedience to God, and if we can't obey God apart from his grace, how could anybody do a good work without the grace of Jesus? See, this is why I make the distinction between being nice and good works according to the New Testament. You don't need Jesus to be nice. 
right? There are many nice, fantastic people who don't know Jesus. The good works of the New Testament is not be nice. Good works of the New Testament is obeying God because of his grace. Does that make sense? This is what the, uh, the author is calling us to. And actually, when you see this, you look at Titus 2, you look at Ephesians 2, one of the reasons that Jesus gives grace to sinners is to make us zealous, excited, and eager to do good works. Jesus actually saves us to do acts of obedience to God. That's one of the reasons that he saves us. You guys don't look convinced, so I'm going to read you a passage. Is that okay? It's like, this is not biblical, Claude. Please, please correct this. Let me, let me, let me read this to you, right? This is important before we get to all the, um, all the actual ways that we can do this, okay? Titus. Titus 2. You guys want to flip there on your phones real quick? Titus 2. Ah, you guys will do anything I say. This is fantastic. You actually don't have to. I'll read it. Titus 2.14. But, but again, look at this. Maybe look at this passage this week. Maybe read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 this week. Um, but, but look at this. Uh, 2.11, the grace of God has appeared. And then in, four, in verse 14, uh, or let me go from 13, uh, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice this verse puts uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus as human and divine, fully God, fully man, aside. And then 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Good works. So part of the work of the gospel is to restore us to God and also to make us excited, eager, and zealous to obey God. That's good works according to the New Testament good works. And let me tell you this, you also see this in Titus, that good works are obedience to Jesus because of his grace, and good works point to Jesus, not us. Good works adorn the gospel. Good works adorn the fact that we have been saved by grace because the source of our good works is not our own goodness, but the one who has changed us, who has saved us, and who is in the process of redeeming us. I want you to think about it like this. If you have a beautiful, beautiful monument or building or statue in the city that's sort of obscured from, from, from people's vision, people don't really know how to get there, it's maybe hidden behind a couple of things, but, but you decide, you know what, people need to see this. This thing is incredible. People have to see this. I'm excited for people to see this. People are going to see this. You guys get the point? You want people to see this. So you go and make a bunch of copies and signage of arrows, and you just place them all along the road, pointing towards the monument. They're all directing for miles and miles away, and as you get closer to the monument, you point arrows that are here, that show that's here. And so when people see the arrows, they don't just see the arrows. They say, well, what's this taking me to? What's this directing me to? Let me, let me follow the arrow. The arrow's not that nice, but the arrow is pointing me to something. That, in essence, is what good works are for the believer, that they don't just point to us. They're the cause of Jesus, and they reflect the work of Jesus, because there's obedience in your life that you could not have generated on your own. So when people see those good works, they don't say, wow, Claude is fantastic. They say, wow, something has happened to Claude. Claude normally wouldn't do such a thing. The Claude I used to know, there's something working in his life. Do you understand? So good works are the result of grace, and they point us to the one who has given us such transforming grace. They point us to Jesus Christ. And so the call for the follower of Jesus is to provoke people to these things, love for God, love for their neighbor, and good works that flow out of faith in the gospel. And this is such a critical part of the Christian life. The author of Hebrews says, don't just do this off the cuff when you have a little bit of free time, but consider, consider 
how to stir people up to love and good works. This language of consider means deep reflection, deep concern, deep thoughtfulness. Be concerned, be active, and be thoughtful about how to provoke people up towards Jesus. That's what the author is saying here. Others saying, you actually want to think deeply about this. What does it look like to stir up other believers towards love and good works? So how do we actually do this, do this work? How do, we, how do we do this work of stirring people up towards love and good works? Well, look at what the author says. If we flip to the text, he's going to give a, a negative. He's going to say one way not to do this. He's going to show us some of how. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So one of the ways that we stir people up towards love and good works is by meeting together, by, by doing what you're doing right now. So you, you're, you're, when you come, uh, when you come on to, to worship, you're, you're actually engaged, you're doing a good work of obedience. You're, you're doing good work, and your presence is actually stirring others up towards love and good works for Jesus. Right? So, so, so you're actually engaging in that even right now if it's coming from, from a heart of, of, of faith and, and not a desire to earn favor, but responding to God's favor and grace. All right, meeting together. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Colossians 3.16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing spiritual psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when we meet together as a church, it's so much more than, than just, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. You're actually engaging in a good work of obedience that is building others up in Christ. When you sing, you're not just stirring your own soul, worshiping God, you're actually provoking the person next to you to love and good works for Jesus as they hear those truths come from you with love, passion, and desire for the Savior. Do you, do you understand that? So, so see how simple but beautiful this is, which is why the author says, don't neglect to gather. Don't neglect to be together. When we gather, we actually stir people up. So we stir people up to love and good works for Jesus by meeting together. One of the other ways we stir people up uh, to love and good works is by talking to Jesus about people. We stir people up by talking to Jesus about the people. What I mean by this is prayer. There's a reason the Apostle Paul in almost all of his letters opens with the thanksgiving and a prayer. And notice he's telling the people what he's been praying for them. Well, why, why does he do that? Is it just for him to remember so he can reference it later, put on his resume, right? No, he, this is a way of stirring them up. Where he's saying, I have not, to Philippians, he says, I remember you in my prayers always, making my prayer with joy because of, my partner, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then what does he say? And I am sure of this that God will bring to completion the good work he started in you. He's telling them of his prayers for them in order to stir them up for Jesus. To say, wow, Paul didn't forget about us. He's praying for us. He's praying for us. Man, Paul's got our back. He's on his knees. He's got hole in his jeans because he's praying for us all the time, every day. And he's making these prayers with joy. He's actually excited to pray for us. Man, okay, let's get after it. Let's keep pressing on, even though people are making fun of us, even though it's difficult, even though life is hard. Let's keep after Jesus. Guess who's praying for us? Paul's praying for us. Timothy's praying for us. Man, let's go for it. Do you see? And so we can stir people up to love and good works by talking to Jesus about those people, by praying for one another, 
by praying for our church, by praying for the churches, by praying for our kids, by praying for one another. We stir people up to love and good works. If you don't know what to do with that, just take take those first uh, intro letters or first chapters of Paul where he has a lot of prayers and just turn those prayers into your own prayers for one another. Stir your spouse up to love and good works by praying those prayers for them. Stir your roommate up, stir people in your GC up by praying those prayers for them and then tell them. It's not hypocritical to say, hey, guess what? I've been praying this passage for you. Guess what people will walk away thinking? They won't walk away thinking, wow, you're so amazing. They'll walk away being encouraged. It's okay to tell people you're praying for them. It's a way of stirring them up. The other way we stir people up towards love and good works is by talking to people about Jesus. So, so if those of you who are scared to talk to, um, talk to people about Jesus, uh, you can do a lot of the work of talking to Jesus about people, but at some point, talk to the people about Jesus, okay? We can't, we can't be disciple makers if we don't, if we don't talk, uh, talk to people about Jesus. And this is primarily, I think, in this text, primarily within the, the family of God, primarily within the, the local churches, talking to other people who love Jesus about Jesus. Does that sound intimidating? Does that sound intimidating to you guys? I think it is, right? Let's just be honest, right? Any, any church gathering you go to, you can notice the dynamic in the room where you're talking about the weather, and then it's time to talk about Jesus. <laughs> and then people are like, well, Jesus, this, this guy, right? It was just like, are you serious? Like, it's Jesus, come on, it's okay. <laughs> oh, the weather, oh, this movie, Jesus, this, well, Jesus might crush us now, but it's, it's like, what are you doing? It's Jesus. Let's just talk about him. It's okay, right? And so we have to grow in becoming comfortable in talking to other people who love Jesus, talking to them about Jesus. So we have to take, just take the next steps of just being like, hey, this might be awkward, but let's talk about Jesus right now, right? Just, just say, if you feel awkward, hey, it's awkward, let's just do it anyway. We have to get comfortable talking to people who love Jesus, uh, talking to them about Jesus. Otherwise, we'll never encourage and stir one another up to love and good works. This won't happen. And so we have to talk to one another about Jesus, right? You can do this with your kids. You can do this with people in your GC. You do this with your spouse. You do this with people in, people in the church, right? And I know some of our temperaments, we don't really like talking. Some of us don't, just don't want to talk, right? But you got the Holy Spirit, and this is for you too. So figure out in your own way, what does it look like to do this, right? This is how we stir people up towards love and good works. And there are a couple of things that you can, you can do here that are, that are easy to engage in, is just ask people, hey, Jesus is a real person, so it's okay to ask questions like, hey, how are things with Jesus? Just like you would with, with someone's wife or their boyfriend or their roommate. Hey, how are things with Jimmy? Is that, hey, how are things with Jesus? What's going on, what's going on with Jesus and you right now? Right? Just ask. You see, you see what they say, right? Or even ask, hey, how can I pray for you? Man, people be encouraged. I'm always encouraged if someone asks me, how can, how can I pray for you? It might take me a couple of seconds. I'm like, man, let me think about that because I want to give you a good answer, but that means a lot to me. Thank you. Right? So how, how, how's things with Jesus? How can I pray for you? Well, you know, as we're doing a community Bible reading together, this is just an easy avenue because you ask, hey, how's CBR going? I asked like seven people that this morning. We had great conversations. We kind of encouraged each other by recognizing like, oh man, we got to be more intentional carving out our time and stuff. But it's, it was encouraging. It was really encouraging. So just asking people questions like that. So, so talk to people uh, about Jesus. Other way we can stir one another up, and this is what the author says in, in 25, is, is actually doing the specific work of encouraging. How many of you ever feel you're too encouraged? You just walk around like, I'm too encouraged. This is not right. Anyone ever feel that way? Yeah, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. We'll all follow you now, right? Oh, 
people have encouraged me too much lately. This is just wrong. It's ungodly, right? No, no one's like that. Everyone's the opposite. Everyone feels like a total failure, right? Everyone feels overwhelmed. Over, everyone carries around this just incredible sense of their sinfulness and their inadequacy and their anger and their issues, right? People need to be encouraged. And not flattered. They, need to be, they actually need to be encouraged. They don't make things up, but actually just encourage them right? People need to be encouraged. Think about the Christian life is a marathon. Jesus compares the Christian life to carrying a cross to, your, to, to a hill to be crucified and nailed to. The Christian life is a succession of deaths where we are dying to ourselves and we're overwhelmed by the sense of our sin and we need to be redirected to the Savior continually. So we need to be encouraged. And so one of the ways that we can stir one another up to love and good works for Jesus is to encourage one another. Here are a couple ways you can do this specifically thank people for the things that they do that help you spiritually. So somebody has, in, has helped you spiritually, they maybe, maybe shared something uh, in inside a gospel community, or they prayed for you, or they encouraged you in a certain way, or they, they helped explain something, actually just thank them and say, hey, I want to thank you for blank. God used that to really help me. That's a way to encourage somebody, because you know what they're going to do? They're going to replicate that thing. Look, wow, that actually was helpful. I had no idea. I thought you hated me. Okay, great. That helped you. Let me continue to do that. Hey, I want to thank you for texting me about how you could pray for me. That actually really encouraged me because I was having a hard time. Just encourage people like that. I know a lot of you do that. I want to spur you on to keep doing that. You can encourage people in another way. Stir people up by encouraging them, not just for the spiritual good they do, but encourage people in their trials. Right? When you know somebody is going through something difficult, or a new transition in life, a new baby, new job, they move, right? Whatever it is, right? Encourage people in their trials. We should have kind of encouragement antennas. When someone goes through a life changer and trial, those antennas need to perk up, right? Because change is hard, right? New baby, new job, new roommates, right? They need encouragement in trials. So you can, one of the ways you can encourage people in trials is, is, is by thinking of a specific truth about God that applies to their trial and encouraging them with that. Say, hey, I know blank is hard, but man, I want to encourage you by reminding you this attribute of God. You don't say this attribute of God, I actually tell them the attribute, right? But you, you get what I'm saying? I'm trying to make this as practical as possible. I hope this is helpful so that we can grow in this, but specifically encourage people who are in trials. Other way you can stir people up through encouragement is specifically encouraging them in their progress. So encourage people by thanking them for the ways they're doing spiritual good to us. We encourage people by, help, by encouraging them about God and their trials. And we encourage people when we see their progress. Let me give you an example. I'm coaching fourth grade basketball right now, which is a uh, very interesting experiment. <laughs> um, these fourth graders are so funny. And there's one fourth grader um, who I love uh, I love them all, and, and one of them in particular, because he just had no skill whatsoever the first day. In fact, he was like wearing a coat on the court. I was like, dude, you got to take the coat off. Um, and he's just like dribble like this, and it's layups, layup form. You know hoops, I got to do this. Uh, you know hoops, right? Right hand, right knee, up, together, okay? Well, when he comes down, it's like, it's just like, it's like, all right, Kevin, we got this is going to be a long, long road. And, uh, but a couple weeks in, he's got it. Like, he's really got it. And his mom's off in the corner. His brother, they're like smiling. It's like, 
Kevin is really making it happen right now. And so he's like my favorite player on our team because he's improved so much. So every time when we, we open with our layup drills and Kevin goes down, I don't even care if he makes the layup, but he's got the form down, which is complicated. So every time I'm like, Kevin, great job, great form every time because I know how far he's come. He couldn't even dribble a basketball. He's wearing a coat and, and like a sled. And like, it's like, what are you, this is basketball, dude. But he's, he's, he's made progress. So every time he goes down for layup, like, Kevin, great job. You are doing great. It's encouraging him because of his progress. And how many of us are desperate to hear that, to just be reminded? Like, God's not done with us. We're making progress. So we need one another. When we see those signs, when we see those glimmers of like, man, you're growing, you're more patient, you're more loving, you're more hospitable, man, you're more prayerful, you're more humble, you're more patient with your kids. That's not just you learning a new discipline. That's God's work in your heart. I want to encourage you. Now, this requires that we're actually close enough with a few people for them to see the progress, right? In order to see progress, you need to see the, the lack of progress, right? So, so this requires being close to one another, getting to know one another, spending time with one another. But when we see progress, we want to encourage, right? Do this with your family. Do this with your spouses. Do this with your gospel community. Do this with your roommates. See those progress and encourage them for God's work in them. Because most of us walk around with a sense of, of just being defeated, don't we? Just a sense of just, I'm going backwards. We have this hyper-awareness of our sin. We have a very small awareness of how God is working in our lives. So we need to encourage one another when we see progress. Now, here's the outcome if we do this work. The, the outcome. One of the outcomes is that we will not end our lives with regret. Notice what the, uh, what the author does. He says, encouraging one another... And this is, and all the more as you see the day coming, this return of Jesus Christ, when all will stand before him, all will be judged, and God will usher in the new heavens and new earth for those who have trusted and received his grace in Christ. There's this sense of time is short, therefore encourage all the more. The day is coming, therefore make use of the limited time we have to stir people up for Jesus. There will come a time when we will not be able to encourage one another towards love and good works because we will be glorified in the presence of Jesus. Therefore, with the time that we have, let's do all that we can to stir up the people of God to live and love and be devoted to the Son of God. Let's make the most of it because the time is short. And I want you to think about this for a second, this idea of engaged disciple makers, stir people up towards Jesus. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the fact that I want you to think about the fact of legacy. When it comes to the commission that Jesus Christ is given to make disciples, when it comes to this, this call to help people grow in their walk with Jesus, what legacy do you want to see left behind when you look back on your X amount of decades on earth? What do you want to be able to say? You know, recently we have this transition happening in our country, uh, in this transition in the, in, the, in the White House, right? And so we have President Obama is doing all these speeches, right? Where he's, and then part of it is looking back on his legacy, saying this is what we've done, this and this and that, this, so on and so forth, right? Well, what do you want to be able to do in that regard for your life of disciple making? What do you want to be able to say? 
Think about that and do encouragement based on what you want to be able to say looking through the corridor of your decades on this earth. Reverse engineer from that. Because the time is coming when you will not be able to stir people up to love and good works. You will just be left with the fruit of your labor. So have that in mind. The outcome of stirring up. One of the things that happens when we stir people up towards love and good works for Jesus, when we encourage people, we help people stay from becoming stagnant. Because our default is to be stagnant. Our default is to be discouraged. Our default is to kind of think, is anything happening in my life with Jesus at all? It feels slow. It feels like it's inching backwards instead of running forward. So when we encourage one another, we help push people out of that literal stagnation or that sense of stagnation. Which is why he, the author of Hebrews in, uh, in chapter 3 will say, uh, encourage one another, exhort one another, so that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We actually have something in us, our sinful nature, that will cause us to stagnate spiritually unless we're stirred up, unless we're helped, unless we're encouraged. So part of the outcome of doing this is that we prevent stagnation and instead we spur on growth. One of the other outcomes, if you take this to heart, you will be one of the people that people love to be around. If you are an encourager, and not a flatterer, but an actual encourager, you observe like, man, you're growing. How can I pray for you? Um, look, man, you're just excited about Jesus and it rubs off to people, on other people. People will want to be around you all the time. Because you'll be the opposite of most people. You know what most people are? A drain, right? You ever been around someone, all they do is complain? And then you leave them and you're like, ah, everything is hard. You're just like, oh, what happened to me? It's rubbed off, right? But if you take this to heart, this text to heart, you will become like, you will change your name to Barnabas. He's like, no, no, please don't do that. You will be a son of encouragement. You will be a person that people gravitate towards because when they are around you, they are provoked to love for the Savior. They're encouraged. You say, every time I get around this person, I walk away loving Jesus more. Man, to be that type of person, think of the legacy you would leave. You see, some of us hear that and say, oh, that's going to be so corny. Not if it's from the heart. If it's from the heart, it won't be corny. People know when you're being real. People know when you're faking. Oh, Jesus, oh, right? People can read that. But when it's from the heart, man, people gravitate towards that. People want to be around those type of people. People, we want to be that type of person. Think of what impact that has in your life. Think of what will happen in our church if we grow in that. We have that, but if we grow in that, think of what impact that would have in our church. Everybody in this room would be refreshed. We would, have, we would be like this. Life is hard. These things are difficult, but I know God is with me. Be encouraged. Man, money is short, but I know God is faithful. You know how? Everyone in my gospel community keeps reminding me. They're praying for me. They're helping me. They're encouraging me. We would be refreshed in a way that is really by the work of the Spirit. And so the vision for this, the outcome for this is incredible. It's why we should give ourselves to this type of work. And here's the other thing that will happen if we give ourselves to this type of disciple-making through stirring up, right? Disciple-making is teaching, but disciple-making through stirring up. If we do this, our friends who don't know Jesus will be greatly intrigued. They will be greatly intrigued by our perspective through trials, 
they will be greatly intrigued by the love we demonstrate to others, particularly to our church family, and to the love that we receive from our church family. They will be greatly intrigued. And they'll begin to ask, well, you guys live in this, this way. Why, why, why do you do this? Why are, you, why are you so encouraged? This thing just happened in your life. You just lost your job. Why are you so encouraged? Why are you so help, hopeful? Man, I wouldn't feel like that. And we have opportunities to actually do what 1 Peter 3 says, is to give an answer for the hope that's in, within us. And so the outcome of stirring one another up is massive within the church and outside of the church. Now, I want to close with this because the, the problem is we cannot do, we can't really do this work. We can't do this work unless, unless all the realities of Hebrews before this passage are real to us. We can't stir people up for Jesus unless our own soul has been captivated by Jesus. Listen, have you ever, you ever seen someone try to make a pitch for something that they they're not really experiencing. You see how painful that is? You could just read it from a mile away that this is not a, this is bad acting. You ever seen a bad actor, right? That, that's what it's like if you try to encourage people, but Jesus is not in your heart. It's just bad acting. God is faithful. There, there's nothing there. But when our soul has been captivated by all Jesus has done, all Jesus is, all Jesus has promised, when our soul is captivated by that, then the outflow of stirring people up, though it is work, it becomes our deep desire. When we understand, as Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about, that Jesus actually took our sin upon himself with joy, that Jesus carried his cross with joy, that Jesus was nailed to a cross of wood with joy, that Jesus fulfilled the Father's plan for our salvation with joy, knowing what it would produce. When we understand that, then our desire becomes, I want people to be stirred up to my Savior. I want people to love my Savior. I want people to do good works towards my Savior so that everyone can see how amazing my Savior is because I see how amazing he is. And so the, the power, the source, the cause of any of stirring up as disciple-making comes from seeing Jesus Christ himself. Which means we have to do the exhortations that the author gives in 19 and 22. We actually need to draw near to Jesus so that we see Jesus and are captivated by him. We actually need to trust the Savior. We need to consider and reflect on what Christ has done. We need to stay close to the foot of the cross. We need, as we talked about last week, center our lives, not on our activity, but on the redemption that Christ has actively done for us. And when we start to do those things, you become obsessed with this question. How can I stir up others who love Jesus to love Jesus more? Because he's worth it. Because that's the best thing for them. That's the best thing for me. And Jesus becomes the center of your encouragement. But only when we're captivated by what he's achieved for us upon the cross. So the call for us is this, is that engaged disciple makers stir people up towards Jesus, love and good works. But in order to be stirred up to do that, we have to see the beauty of what Christ has already done. 
So may we see how these are linking together. May we center our lives on the gospel so that we can continue to stir one another up towards the Savior. When we do that, our church will be transformed more and more, and our city will see it as well. Let's take a moment to respond uh, through uh, communion as well as through silent prayer. As we get ready for communion, I want to, uh, want to read a text for us. And one of the gifts of communion, one of the things that Jesus has instituted for his church, is the fact that we have a tangible display of the gospel as we go to the rear and receive communion. Is that as we talk about the call to be an engaged disciple maker, it flows out of what Christ has done. We have to see what Christ has done for us before we can do any of this. What we have at the table is we have a tangible expression of, a, of an invisible grace. We have the bread representing Jesus' body broken. We have the juice representing Jesus' blood spilled in our place to restore us to God eternally and presently. And so as we go forward and, and receive that, we, we do so knowing that we bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to it but our sin, but we are met with nothing but grace. This is what Jesus says when he institutes the Lord's Supper. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. He's making it clear. This is a demonstration of the reality of the gospel. So this is open to anyone here who trusts Jesus, whether you're part of this church or whether you're here for the first time. So I'm going to go ahead and lead us in a moment of silent prayer. Before you go to the table, consider your state of your heart. Consider if there's things you need to confess to God or even to another person in this room. And then as Joanna leads us in the next three songs, at any point in those next three, you're free to go to the back and receive communion as a celebration of what Christ has done for you. Okay? Let's take a moment to pray silently before God. Father, we thank you for the fact that despite our sin, despite our brokenness, and even uh, despite our sin uh, as, as your children, that you continue to dispense grace to us, all flowing from the source of your love, all flowing from the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you counted the cross as joy, that you despised the shame of the cross, you endured it, you completed the work, and you have made atonement for the sins of all and everyone who trusts in you. We pray that as we prepare to go to the table and sing in response to your word, in response to your call, Jesus, for us to make disciples, to encourage one another within the church to be stirred up towards you, we pray as we consider that and as we go to the table that you would help take these realities of the gospel and this call to disciple-making and you would make them real in our hearts. Would you, out of a deep love, for your name, would you make disciple-making and encouragement and stirring one another up, would you make that our deep desire? Not for our own reputation, not for people to see us and, and marvel, but for, that, for people to, to see you, for people to be built up in you, for people to grow with you, for your church to be strengthened and to grow in maturity. Draw our hearts to you as we move into this time of response. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.